Okay, we're with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. Malachi chapter 4, we'll actually read verses 1 through 6, but we'll be uh, preaching from 5 to 6 today. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. It says, For behold, the days are coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and Lord, how it teaches and prepares us, Lord, for things that are still yet to come. Lord, we know that Christ has come in his incarnation. He has ascended to the right hand of God. And Lord, he is waiting until the day when you make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. And that there is a day coming, Lord, very quickly, when Christ will return in his glory. Lord, when every eye will see him. And Lord, on that day, he will enter into judgment with the nations. Lord, we thank you that you have told us beforehand, Lord, what is going to come to pass so that, Lord, we might be prepared for this day, Lord, that we might be prepared to stand before the Lord and to give an account. And, Lord, we thank you that you have provided a way, Lord, a way in which sinful men like us can stand before you and, Lord, not be cast into the lake of fire through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that today, Lord, you would put this on our mind, it would be in our hearts, Lord, it would be on our lips, and we pray, Lord, that we would teach it, Lord, not only to ourselves, but also to our children and to our grandchildren, and that, Lord, you would turn the hearts of our fathers to their children and the hearts of our children to their fathers, Lord, that we might be united together under one roof, Lord, in one faith, Lord, to serve the Lord our God. So, Lord, give us this blessing, and, Lord, may you bless the teaching of your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of the book of Malachi, and if there is one thing that we should take away from our study of this book, it is the necessity of the fear of the Lord. We have to fear God, and without the fear of the Lord, we cannot live a life that is pleasing to God. We remember Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Malachi 1, 6, he said, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. Right? A father expects his son to honor him, and a son knows that it is his duty to honor his father. A master expects his slave to fear him by doing his will, 
And every slave knows that he ought to give proper fear and reverence to his master. If men know to do this one to another in the proper relationships, then how much more ought we to fear God and to give God the honor that is due his name? We must possess the fear of the Lord. As it says in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, but fools, they despise wisdom and instruction. If we will live lives before the Lord that are pleasing, right, wise lives, then we must have the fear of God. We must humbly submit to his word, to his declaration concerning all things, but especially concerning sin and judgment and repentance. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the end of the, ma- of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God, he says. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Right? We fear God by believing his judgments, his declarations against sin, his judgments against our sins. Right? We fear him by seeking reconciliation with God through the only source of salvation that God has provided, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We fear God by believing in Christ and by repenting of our sin. We fear God by living a godly life and walking in the pathway of his commandments. Ultimately, we fear God because we know there is a day of judgment coming in every deed, whether good or evil, whether open or secret, every deed will be brought into judgment on that day. The day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, we will give an account to the Lord, so we must be reconciled to God now before the day of the Lord comes. This is what Malachi is pleading with his audience to learn. This is what he's pleading with us to learn as well. He sought to convince us of the reality of sin, right, of the certainty of the day of judgment, and the necessity of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what he has taught us, and this is what all the prophets and all the apostles teach as well, that these truths must be adhered to by us. We must believe these things in the fear of the Lord. So we will turn one last week to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Here, God promises to send to the people Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome or great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Right Before this day is revealed, before it comes into human history, God is going to first raise up Elijah the prophet, send him to the people before the great and awesome and terrible day of the Lord. Turn back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. This is why it is necessary for Elijah to be sent. It is necessary because the state of the people, when Christ came, when he was revealed, was so dull. The people were so hard-hearted when Christ appeared that it is as if no one would have believed in Christ had God not prepared the way for him through the prophet Elijah. Though Moses is commended to them by the prophet Malachi. That, that's what we read last week. right? Remember the law of my servant Moses. right? The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Malachi commends. Right here at the end of his book, he tells the people, remember the law of Moses. Right? Remember the prophets. Right? Meditate upon them. Follow them. Believe them. Do what they tell you to do. That They should have been careful to listen to the word of God. However, the people failed to do so. They failed to pay close attention, and they fell into a state of apostasy from the Lord. Malachi is in this last era of the writing prophets of the Old Testament. Malachi is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are the last prophets that God speaks through the people of Israel too. Right? From Moses to Malachi, God had raised up a succession of prophets to call the people out of a state of sin through repentance. This is why God gave them their prophets in order to expose the sins of the people, call them to repent, and bring about a reformation of the worship of God. And from the time of Moses until the appearance of John the Baptist in Jesus Christ, the longest period of time in Israel's history when there was not a prophet of God is from the end of Malachi until the coming of John the Baptist. Though they were commanded at the end of the Old Testament canon, to remember the law of my servant Moses. We know, because of the state of the people during the time of Christ, that they didn't listen, that they did not listen and they did not follow the law of Moses properly. Now, they were reading it, but they weren't reading it correctly. They were reading it with false interpretations. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 30 this is what Jesus is addressing when he is dialoguing and having this conflict, this argument with the Jews of the time. John chapter 5, verse 30. He says, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. 
His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So there, they didn't listen to the law of Moses. They were reading it, but they weren't reading it rightly. Because the law of Moses and the prophets were testifying of Jesus Christ. Telling them to put their faith in the coming Christ. To listen to the coming Christ. Didn't Moses tell the people that in Deuteronomy 18.15? That God would raise up a prophet like him from among their brothers. And that he's the one that they should listen to. He is the ultimate prophet of God. The ultimate revealer of God. He's the one that you should listen to. Moses told them that. Then when that prophet arises, when he comes to the people, they don't listen to him. They reject him because they rejected God. So they did not listen to Malachi. Malachi told them to listen to the law of Moses, but they refused to listen. So when the time for the incarnation of the Son of God is near to the people, this is why it was necessary for God to raise up Elijah among the people in order to prepare them for the coming of the Lord. The people had descended into such a state of apostasy that if Elijah was not sent to the people, the people would not be prepared and they would not be ready for the coming of the Lord. So here God promises to send Elijah before the great and awesome, terrible day of the Lord. Now, when he says Elijah, he means it's not in a literal sense, right? Of course, the Bible is not teaching reincarnation, as there are some people, even some who claim to be Christians, who falsely believe, like Reba McIntyre, who claims to be a Christian, but also believes in reincarnation. These are contradictory. You cannot hold both of these beliefs together in the same body of doctrine or in the same theology. It's impossible to be a Christian and believe in reincarnation. So when he says he's going to send Elijah, he doesn't mean that Elijah is going to be reincarnated, nor does he mean that Elijah is going to be resurrected and he's going to be resuscitated and it will be the actual person, Elijah, who will come back and will speak to the people. He doesn't mean it in a literal sense. He means it in a figurative sense. He means that God would raise up another prophet separate from Elijah, but that this prophet would be like Elijah in that he would come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. The ministry that he would perform among the people would be similar to, it would be like the same ministry that Elijah performed during his own days. And after Moses, Elijah has a chief rank among the prophets in that God performed many powerful signs and wonders throughout his ministry. Look at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. 
Matthew 17, verse 1. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led, him, led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, right? Whenever Jesus tells them Elijah does come and he already has come and they didn't recognize him and they did to him whatever they please, they understand that he's not talking about Elijah literally, but rather he's talking about John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was Elijah that was predicted and promised here through the prophet Malachi. Moses and Elijah, they are the two who appear to Christ, with Christ, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses symbolizing and representing the law. Elijah symbolizing and representing the prophets. For all of the law and the prophets testify to who? To the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus tells his disciples that John the Baptist is the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now we remember that during the time of Elijah, when he performed his ministry, it was during some of the darkest days in the history of Israel. Elijah plowed among the rocks, among the thorns, among the thistles, because of the reign of Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. Turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16 1 Kings 16 and verse 29. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Bel and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Bel in the house of Bel, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. 
In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So there, concerning Ahab, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who went before him. So in terms of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, which all of the kings of the north were wicked kings. They never had one single good righteous king. Of all of them, the most rotten apple of the bunch was who? It was Ahab. Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And this is the era, the time, when Elijah is raised up by God to be a prophet among these people, under these circumstances, in this condition. And a desperate time like this calls for an extraordinary prophet. And that extraordinary prophet was Elijah, who came with great power and great might in the power of God. And so it is before the coming of Christ. It's an extraordinary time. So it calls for an extraordinary prophet. Again, a prophet who is like Elijah, who can call the people back to repentance. Because the worship of God has once again been polluted. The people are in a state of apostasy, so it is necessary for there to be a reformation of true religion before the coming of the Lord. And this is why God raised up John the Baptist. He was sent by God to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, a couple of passages for cross-references that show us that this was indeed the case with John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And who was that one in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord? It was John the Baptist. This is how his father, Zechariah, understood it, and how it was told to him as well by the prophet or by the angel. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. This is of Zechariah. It says, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There we have it. The angel says that he will go, John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Right? That's what Malachi means in Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. When he says, I will send Elijah before you, he means it in this sense. The angel's given the interpretation in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then the angel is quoting from our passage. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. That this is the ministry that he will perform in order to make ready the people for the Lord. Also, while we're in Luke 1, verse 67. Verse 67. We sang this this morning, but we'll read it here. Luke 1, 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So there, Zechariah understands that this child, his son, John, will be a prophet of the Most High God, and it is given to him this task of preparing the people for the coming of the Lord. And how does he prepare them according to Zechariah? Knowledge of salvation. He's teaching the way of salvation through repentance and faith, right? The necessity of salvation, right? The knowledge of salvation, the need of the forgiveness of sins through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what Zechariah knows about his own son, John the Baptist. Also, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1. Matthew 11, verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
And what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen, there, uh, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So there, according to Jesus' own testimony, John is Elijah. John is Elijah, the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, according to Zechariah, and he is the fulfillment of what is prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Now, why is this so important for Elijah to come? Why is it important that we recognize and know these things? Because here... He assures the people that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That the day of the Lord will come on the heels of the coming of John or of Elijah. And they better be ready. They better be ready because it is the day of the Lord that is coming. And it is called a great day. It is called an awesome day or a terrible day. It is great in that what Christ does on that day will not be insignificant, but it will be great, and it will reveal the power and might of God. It will show God's supremacy over all things when He judges the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Right? It will be a great day because it will clearly manifest to the entire world the glory and righteousness of God Almighty. Also, here it's called an awesome day, or some translations say a terrible day. Well, why is it awesome or why is it terrible? Because of what will occur to many people on the day of the Lord, right? Like a forest fire burning and blazing in all of its glory, right? It is a terrifying sight to behold. On the one hand, you look at it and you can't take your eyes from it, but on the other hand, it is terrifying. It is a dreadful thing to see, or a tornado, or a hurricane that is coming, these sights, these phenomenon, they are awesome, they are wonderful, they are dreadful, they are terrible because of what they do, the destruction that they leave behind them. And this is how it is on the day of the Lord. The power and glory that will be manifested to the world when Christ comes will invoke both wonder and awe in the eyes of men. It will be an awesome sight to behold, but then when they understand that he's coming for them. He's coming to them, not as a friend, 
right? Not someone who's coming to deliver them, but rather someone who's coming to judge them, someone who's coming to destroy them, then it will be a terrible day for them. A dreadful day, it will be an awesome day when Christ comes. It will terrify them when they see him coming because he's coming to judge them, to judge the nations in righteousness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. Notice how it is described when Christ is revealed from heaven. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. So there he says, when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that Christ will come with myriads of angels accompanying him from heaven when he is revealed in this way. Well, didn't we read earlier that Zechariah, who was a righteous man, a true believer, when he faced one angel, what did he do? He was in terror. He fell down on his face, and the angel had to assure him that he wasn't there to destroy him. Well, what about this? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming with his glory, and he's bringing with him Many mighty angels as well. Isn't this going to be a dreadful and a terrible sight? And also notice, he says, in flaming fire. He's going to be coming in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. It'll be a terrifying sight for his enemies, not for his people. We'll marvel at him on that day because he's coming not to destroy us, but to deliver us. But he's coming to destroy the wicked. Also, Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Revelation chapter 6. You know all these uh, Christian songs that they have where it talks about wanting to see Christ, wanting to sit in his lap and gaze in his eyes. Do they ever consider these passages when they're writing these uh, superficial songs? I don't think so. Revelation 6, 15 said, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These aren't insignificant people. These are the mighty people, the kings, the generals, right? The mighty ones of the earth, the rich and powerful. Yet when they see Christ coming, 
they say to the rocks and mountains, fall on us, right? Cover us up, kill us, right? Hide us so that we don't have to look at him, so that we don't have to see the coming of Christ. Then also, Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. says, Then I saw a heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the great, and I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So, that's why it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord, because of what he will do. It will be great, and it will be terrible for all of those who do not obey the gospel. Now, these passages we just read, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation 6, Revelation 19, these are speaking of the second coming of Christ, which is still in the future. It has not happened yet. In Malachi chapter 4, he's talking about the coming of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came before the first coming of Christ. So which one is John talking about? Is he talking about the first coming or is he talking about the second coming? Well, certainly, any time Christ comes, it is a great and awesome day. It is a great and terrible day, whether that be his first coming or whether that be his second coming. But we must also remember that the comings of Christ, his first and second coming, that these two things are connected together and they are inseparable in what they accomplish. When Christ came at his incarnation, he came not to judge the world at that time in righteousness. He did not come to perform the final day of judgment at his incarnation, but rather to offer his life as a ransom for his people. But what took place at the first coming is not separate and distinct from what will take place at the second coming, but rather it is preparatory. It is anticipatory of what is going to be revealed. Everything is moving toward the day of the Lord. Everything in the Bible, 
from Genesis 1 all the way through the rest of it, it is all moving to this final climax, the culmination of human history, the culmination of this present world is the day of judgment. It is the second coming of Christ when he will judge the world in righteousness. This present world will come to a screeching halt on the day of the Lord. And this is why God created the world. He created the world so that he might judge the world in righteousness. And when Christ comes on that day to judge the world, he will appear not only as the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, but also as the Son of Man. He will be both because he is both. He is both fully God and fully man. When he judges the world, he will do so not merely as the Son of God, but also as fully man, as the God-man, Christ Jesus, both fully God and fully man. His divine nature and his human nature in, united in one person, the man, Christ Jesus. This is who God has given judgment to. He's given it to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, for Jesus to judge the world as both fully God and fully man, then what does he have to have? Is it not necessary for him to have a human body? And for him to have a human body, was it not necessary for there to be the incarnation? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the body that Jesus took on, his human body that he took on at his incarnation is not the same body that he has today. His human body at his incarnation was subject to weakness. It was subject to dishonor. Not subject to sin, right, because he never sinned, but subject to dishonor in that it was a weak human body. It was a perishable body. It was a natural body. It was a mortal body that was capable of dying and that did die. This is the body that Jesus had at his incarnation from the time of his birth until the time of his resurrection. He had a natural body just like we do. This according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what the apostle is teaching here. When he's teaching about our resurrection, he connects it to Jesus' resurrection. Right, and for him to save us, then he had to be made like us in every way except without sin. Except without sin. And currently, the body we possess is not equipped and it's not fit to enter into the kingdom of God because our body is a mortal, natural, weak, dishonoring body to God. We need a perfect body. We need a resurrected body. We need one that is not like our current body body that we possess. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of a body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, for there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. 
There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. Right here, God's will is that on the day of judgment, Jesus Christ will be the one who judges the world in righteousness, and he will do so according to the will of God, but he will do so as both fully God and fully man. He will do so as the man Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the one that God has given all judgment. God himself, the Father, will judge no one, but he has given all judgment. He's committed it to the Son, and it is the Son, as both God and man, who will judge the world in perfect righteousness. This according to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This is what Jesus teaches. Not that Jesus is judging the world independently from the Father, but because Jesus always does the will of the Father, the Father has given to him this glory or this honor for him to be the one to judge and to judge not only as the Son of God, but also as the Son of Man, as both fully God and fully man. And this is the glory that he will share with us. We will judge the world with Christ. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these, he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil 
to the resurrection of judgment. Right? Whose voice will they hear and come back to life? The voice of Christ. They will hear the voice of Christ, and then he is the one who will execute judgment upon all the people. He will separate people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will do this as both fully God and fully man. He can't do this with the body he had at his incarnation. His weak, natural, perishable body. Right, That body has to give way. That body has to be transformed by the power of God into a glorious body into an imperishable body, into a powerful body, into a spiritual body, right? His first human body was a mortal body that was subject to death. But the body Jesus possesses now is not subject to death. It is an immortal body that he has the power of an indestructible life. It says that in Romans chapter 6, verse 9. It says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead can never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Death no longer has dominion over Christ. He died once for all. And why is that true? Because he has defeated the grave. And the body he rose from the grave with is not like the body that was put into the ground. The body that was put into the ground was the kernel. But the body that was raised was a greater body. It was an indestructible body. It is an immortal body. And what body will he give to us? He'll give us the same body. We'll have the same body of Christ. So at his resurrection, after his resurrection, Jesus now possesses this human body that is necessary for him to judge the world in righteousness according to the will of God. And the means established by God for him to obtain this body was an incarnation, a sinless life, a death, and a resurrection. And now an ascension, and now at the right hand of God the Father, and then when he comes again in his second coming, he will come visibly and physically. He will come with this human body. So the first coming then is necessary in order to bring about the second coming. Right? Both of these things go hand in hand. And that's why Malachi is speaking of John the Baptist. And we know he came before his first coming, but he's saying it as if he's coming right before his second coming because both of them are true. They are true simultaneously. He came before his first, but the first and second are so connected together that he speaks of it as if they are one and the same thing because they are one and the same. Acts chapter 17 One and the same according to the purpose of God. Acts 17, verse 22. This is what the apostle teaches the men of Athens. Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek for God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet actually he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the assurance that he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And who is the man he has appointed for this task? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the one who will fulfill this. So the promise of the second coming of Christ necessitates the first coming of Christ. And the certainty, the, the reality of the first coming guarantees the certainty of his second coming. The first and second comings are inseparably bound together, though we know at this point they are separated by at least 2,000 years. Right? We're still waiting for the coming of Christ in his second coming. But when Malachi predicts that John the Baptist would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he wasn't misspeaking. Right? He wasn't off by a couple of thousand years. He understands and knows the significance of these two events and how they are interrelated and how they go together. This is why he speaks in this way. Now, for what purpose then was John sent? Right? What is the purpose of his coming? Notice verse 6. It says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John's ministry will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, this turning has to do with spiritual realities. He's not talking about uh, that father and sons or father and children, they're going to have the same occupation. He doesn't mean it in the sense that they're going to have common interest in this life, that they're going to enjoy the same hobbies. Certainly, he doesn't mean it in the sense that they're going to be united in sin and wickedness. Though many times this is the case, that fathers and children are united together in their hatred and in their rebellion against God. But here, the purpose of sending Elijah before the great terrible day of the Lord is to turn and unite fathers with their children in the unity of faith. Right? The unity that exists between believers, right? between Christians, between those who are the children of God. The fathers and the children united together in common purpose to live their life for the glory of God, to serve the Lord together under the same roof. This is what he means by the turning of the hearts of fathers to children, that the fathers and the children would be believers together living in the same home. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This is the unity that the apostle speaks of. And this is what is the result of the preaching and the believing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the gospel that John taught the people. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as we were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the unity he's talking about. This is what he will establish among the people. Fathers, mothers, children, they, they will be believers. That children will be like their fathers, and fathers will be like their children. Children of God, right? Living in the same home, filled with the same spirit, united to the one body of Christ, all with the same hope of eternal life, all serving the Lord together, having a like and common faith, all being baptized into the same spirit, all worshiping and serving the same God and Father who is over all and in all. Right? If that is true of a father with his children, then will they not be turned together? Will the heart of the father not be with the children? And will the heart of the children not be with the father when they have one in the same spirit within them? When they serve one in the same God and their faith is alike and a common faith and they have a common purpose in all these things? Here, this is the stated purpose of the ministry of John. This is the reason that God sent him preaching the gospel in the day of Jesus Christ. And this is the purpose of the preaching of the gospel in our own day as well. This is what we should hope for. This is what we should pray for. This is what we should work toward and desire in our own homes. Unity of faith among all of those who dwell under our roofs. Husbands, wives, children, all united in heart, in faith, in pursuit of a godly life. Wouldn't this be a blessed home to live in? Isn't this what we all should desire and want? Luke chapter 1, we read this earlier, we'll read it again, because it gives us the interpretation of what he means by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. Luke 1, 16 says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Notice that, many. He doesn't say all of them, but many of them. So this isn't universal. This is not teaching universalism. It doesn't mean that everyone who hears the gospel is going to believe the gospel or that in every home that this is going to happen. But it will happen in some homes because many are going to be turned to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. What does it mean to turn the hearts of fathers to the children? He says here, it is to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Well, what does it mean to turn? It means to repent. right? It means to repent of sin. And what is the wisdom of the just? other than the wisdom that makes us wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And what did John come doing? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was the summary of his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what John was preaching. And as that message was received and believed among the people, then it bound them together, fathers and children together together. In one home. 
So, for example, say that in the home, the father is a believer. He possesses the wisdom of the just. But the son is an unbeliever. He is disobedient and sinful. Is there going to be true harmony and unity in that home between this father and son? The heart of that father and that son are not going to be united in the Lord. Because the father loves the Lord. The father fears the Lord. He wants to walk in the commandments of the Lord. While the son, he hates God. He has no regard for God. He's living in rebellion against God and living in sin against him. So on the most important issue of life, the father and son are at complete odds. This is like the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. When the prodigal was living in his sin, was he united to his father? He wasn't united to him even in his proximity because he left him, he abandoned him, he went off to a far and distant country so that he could live a reckless, sinful life and squander all of his money on harlots, prostitutes, and wild living. So they were not united together. But then the son repented. He returned to his father, and then what happened? Then they were united together. And so it is when the son, the disobedient son, who has an obedient father, hears the preaching of the gospel, and the Spirit of Christ opens his eyes to see the gravity of his sin, to feel the weight of the judgment of God upon him, and that son, that disobedient son, repents of his sin and trusts in Christ for salvation, he is turned from disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And now he possesses the same wisdom that is found within his father. So now, in that relationship, instead of them being at odds, instead of there being disharmony on the most important issue of life, the father and son are now united together in like faith. The heart of the father is turned to his son, and the heart of the son is turned to his father. Or it can be the other way. The father can be disobedient, and it's the son who has the wisdom of the just. Well, the father should learn from his son, should turn away from his sin, and be united to his son in the wisdom of the just. Now, here in our passage, he specifically mentions fathers and children. But this is true of every relationship. This encompasses many other relationships as well. Husbands and wives, mother and children, grandparents and grandchildren, brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister, right? Uh, father-in-law, son-in-law, right? Mother-in-law with the daughter-in-law. Whatever relationship in life, when the two parties both possess the wisdom of the just, then they will be united together in common faith and purpose in life. And this is one of the stated reasons of the preaching of the gospel. And this is one of the reasons that when it is among us, we should take advantage of it, right? Isn't that good for our hearts to be bound together with our fathers, with our children, right? With our mother, with our grandparents, with our brothers and sisters in like faith? We'll believe the gospel, and then that will be the case in our homes, and it'll be a pleasant place to live. Instead of chaos and misery, like in many places, there'll be harmony, there'll be unity, right? It'll, we'll all be a benefit to one another in our faith. A couple of examples. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice here in verse 5. 2 Timothy 1, 5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois 
and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. So there, what do we have? Grandmother, mother, and son. Grandson, grandson and son, all with the same faith. So are they not going to be united together? Isn't the heart of Lois going to be turned to the heart of Eunice? And isn't the heart of Lois and Eunice going to be turned to the heart of Timothy and his heart to theirs as well? They're all going to be united together because they have the same faith and they have the common purpose in life. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Here we see this among brothers. John chapter 1, verse 35. John 1, 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So there, Andrew learns of Christ, understands that Jesus of Nazareth is the coming Christ that was promised, and then he went and got his brother and brought him to him as well. So that now, Andrew and Peter are united together, knowing and understanding and believing that the promised Christ is indeed Jesus of Nazareth. And what are they both going to do? Be his disciples. They're both going to follow him. They'll both be holy apostles, preaching the same gospel of Jesus Christ. These two brothers united together in like faith. The heart of the brother turned to his brother and the one to the other as well. Also, this can happen between friends, right? Between friends, even those that are not our natural relations. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Isn't this what is referred to when it's speaking of David and Jonathan and the relationship between them? Is it not that their hearts were bound together, turned together, right? In what way? In faith, right? In faith. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. As soon as he has finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over all the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So there it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And he loved him as he loved his own soul. And he made a covenant with him. Right? He subjected himself, though in terms of his rank, he was higher than David at this point, but he understands the spiritual significance of David, his house, 
and the Christ that will come through him. And that's why Jonathan is willing to submit himself. He must increase and I must decrease. It's the same as John the Baptist. That's what he's doing when he subjects himself to David. He understands that David is a person and type of Christ. And this is why his heart is knit together with David. And he loves him as he loves his own soul. Well, this is what we should want in our families, right? To, to have this type of love, this type of harmony, this type of unity. This is a love that will transcend all the love of this world. This is the true love that we want, the love of God in all of our hearts, and then that will spread abroad within our homes as well. Now, we have to ask, how does this passage harmonize with Matthew chapter 10, right? Matthew chapter 10 and what Jesus says there. So we have to understand what he means in this passage in contrast, right, and in harmony with what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, 34 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Malachi says the hearts of fathers are going to be turned to children, and the hearts of children are going to be turned toward their father. They're going to be united together. They're going to be dwelling in harmony and peace. But Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. Actually, I've come, he says, to set a man against his father. Right, to set sons, to set children against their fathers, and to set fathers against their children, and those who are their enemies will be the members of their own household, he says in Luke chapter 12, 49 through 53. So did he come then to bind the hearts of fathers to children, or did he come to set the hearts of fathers against their children? Right? Is it Malachi or is it Jesus? Which one is true? Harmony or opposition? And the answer is both. He came to do both, right? Both of these things will be true. Sometimes there will be harmony. Sometimes there will be opposition. And many times we will experience both of them. This will be the case in the Christian life is that we will have a mixture of both. Now, what we want is harmony, right? What we want is unity of faith, right? We want all of our children all of our grandchildren, right, all of our family to be believers. Just as Moses said, would that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them in Numbers 11, 20, 29. Well, would that God put his spirit in all of our children? Would God save all of our family, all of our relations, our father and our mother and our brothers and our sisters, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins, would that all of them have the spirit of God upon them? This is what we should desire, this is what we should pray for. This is what we should pursue by teaching the Bible in our homes. We should pursue unity of faith through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not through compromise. That's what many people do. They want unity, 
But the only way they can achieve universal unity in their home is by lowest common denominator Christianity. You find two or three things that we all agree on, and then that's all that we'll talk about, but we're not going to talk about anything else. We're not going to talk about anything or what the Bible says about all of these other issues that there's disagreement on. And in this way, we'll have unity of faith, which is actually unity of ignorance, because it's ignorance of the truth. And it's not true faith, because you're not talking about important things that God tells us to talk about. We want true unity of faith which is found when we believe every word of God and we're not denying or ashamed of any part of the word of Christ. We should work toward this. We should plant. We should water in our homes. But ultimately, who is the one that has to give the increase? It is God who must give the increase. It is God who must make this true. He and He alone is the one who can bind the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. Ultimately, it depends on the will of God. Upon His purpose of election, He and He alone is able to do this miracle. This is as it says in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 This is the point he's making here. Romans 9, verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And nowhere in Scripture does it guarantee or promise that every single one of our children and our grandchildren, it is guaranteed in a certainty that they're all going to be believers. Right? If it is, then God lied because he didn't do that for Abraham. He didn't do it for Isaac. He didn't do it for David. He didn't do it for Noah. He didn't do it for Adam. He didn't do it for many of the righteous found in the Old Testament. Ultimately, it's based upon the will of God. And sometimes, according to the will of God, there will be unity of faith. And at other times, there will be opposition to the faith. Wasn't this the case with Adam? Adam had unity with Abel and with Seth, but he had opposition from Cain. What about Noah? Noah had unity with Shem, but not with him, right? Ham was a wicked and an unbelieving man. Abraham had unity of faith with Isaac, but not with Ishmael. Isaac had unity with Jacob, but not with Esau. Aaron had unity with Eleazar and Ithamar, but not with Nadab and Abihu who died before the Lord. What about Naomi? She had unity with Ruth, but not with Orpah, right? She forsook her and went back to her father's house, but Ruth is the one who clung to her. David had unity with Solomon, but he didn't have unity with Absalom because Absalom was a wicked, unbelieving man. So ultimately, it depends not on human will or exertion. Ultimately, it depends on the will of God. And God promises no one to have perfect harmony and perfect unity of faith. However, that doesn't mean that we should be slack and neglect our responsibilities, right? We ought to teach the Bible faithfully in our home for this purpose. 
knowing that many times God will bless us with this blessing. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to the fathers, and I can guarantee you that it will never happen if we're not teaching the Bible in our homes because the means God uses to turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we should not neglect to do what God calls us to do, nor should we neglect the means that God has established to bring this about. Whenever God's word goes forth, this is how men should receive it. They should receive it for their good. They should receive it for their salvation. And if God's word is in our home, then this is a kindness from the Lord. And it should be seized upon. We should take advantage of that kindness. And it should be seized upon by the father, by the mother, and by the children and grandchildren as well. And it should be seized upon in order to establish true faith and true righteousness in the home. This is why God sent John the Baptist before that great, terrible day of the Lord. For the purpose of establishing believing households where there was true faith and true repentance in the people to call the elect to salvation to make a people prepared. And the means God uses always from the beginning of time to the end of time, the means he uses to save His elect out of the world is the preaching of the gospel. He uses the word of God to create the child of God. This is God's way of salvation. And without the preaching of the word, then there is no salvation. Never has been, never will be. Fathers and children will not be united under the banner of Christ if there is not the preaching of the gospel in that home. But instead, they'll be united under the banner of Satan and under the banner of sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11, 6. And faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. This is the means established by God. That's why he sent John the Baptist, to preach the gospel. He sent him as a herald of righteousness, as a preacher of the gospel, and this was the means used by God to bring about this blessing within the homes, turning the hearts of fathers to the children. And now it turns to the conclusion. This is how he ends it. The sending of the prophet John. His ministry will be effective in some, not all, but some. And why is it that it's necessary for him to be effective in the hearts of some? Notice the last phrase. Lest the Lord come and strikes the land with a decree of utter destruction. God is coming. Christ is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And when he comes, he is going to strike this earth with a decree of destruction. But that decree of destruction will not be utter destruction, because on that day, God will spare a man as a man spares his son. He will spare some as a man spares his son. And who are those who will be spared? Those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Those who hear the preaching of the word and repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, but the wheat, the wheat will be gathered into his barn. The fire will not consume everyone. It'll consume the chaff. They'll be destroyed, but not the wheat. 
the wheat will be preserved and the wheat will be saved. They will be spared. So the destruction is not utter destruction. It is thorough destruction. It is the destruction of many. It is the destruction of those who refuse to obey the gospel. They will be destroyed on the great terrible day of the Lord, but not the righteous. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing on its wings, and he will preserve them. They will be spared while the rest will be destroyed. And so we are reminded again, the reality of sin, the certainty of judgment, the necessity of repentance. This is what we must learn. There is only one way of escape. The day of the Lord is coming, and he's going to set the world ablaze. And there's only one way that we can be saved from the day of the Lord, and that is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we can be spared of that great, terrible day of the Lord. We'll finish with a reading from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. All right, this is true for us because we stand on this side of eternity. Right? Those who have passed into eternity, who have left this life, their eternal state is fixed. It is certain. There's nothing that can change it. But we who are alive, we who still have breath in our lungs, then the promise is still there for us. But we better take heed lest we, in, we fail to enter into the rest of God. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Right? The promise still stands because we haven't entered into it yet. We're still waiting to enter, so we're receiving it on a promise. So you better fear God, lest you don't enter into that rest. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Right here he's speaking of the wilderness generation. The good news, the gospel, was preached to them by Moses, but the gospel they heard didn't benefit them because they didn't believe it. They were not united by faith with those who listened, like Moses, like Aaron, like Eleazar, right? like those who believed, like Joshua, like Caleb. Right? It benefited them, but the rest of them, it did not benefit because they didn't believe it. They did not believe it. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Right? What happened to the wilderness generation, them dying in the wilderness, is an example, a symbol, an illustration of eternal fire. The judgment of God that will come upon all of the wicked and all of the unbelieving. That's why they weren't allowed to enter into the land of Canaan, which was a symbol of heaven of the eternal rest of God. He would not let them enter as a symbol and sign that unbelievers will not enter into the kingdom of God. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news or the gospel failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain today, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from the works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Right there, he's saying that Joshua did not give them ultimate rest. He gave them a type of rest. He gave them a symbol of rest, but he did not give them ultimate rest because David, so many years later after Joshua, 500 years after Joshua, is still talking about a rest for the people of God and that we need to enter into that rest. So what is the rest they're all talking about? It's heaven. It is the heavenly rest for those who believe the gospel of Christ. And we have not entered that rest yet. So you better make sure that you strive to enter that rest. And how do we enter in? By obedience, by faith in the word of Christ. We obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That's what he says, that we must not fall by the same sort of disobedience. They refused to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Just as it said earlier in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 12, those are the ones that Christ comes to destroy. Those who refuse to obey the gospel of Christ. Well, if we would learn from Malachi or any other portion of the Bible, then what must we learn to do? We must learn to heed the word of God, to believe the word of God, to obey the word of God, to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if Malachi is going to be a benefit to you and to me, then this is what we must do. Repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your holy word. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the prophet Malachi. Lord, this man that you raised up, Lord, to be a herald, Lord, to be a prophet of righteousness, Lord, who would preach to the people, Lord, the gospel of Christ, Lord, the necessity, Lord, of us repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ because of the great and terrible day of the Lord that is coming. Lord, we know that you are going to judge the world in righteousness. Lord, we know that it is appointed for a man to die and after that comes judgment, that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, we know as well, your word teaches us that all of the evil doers, Lord, and all the arrogant, Lord, you're going to set them ablaze. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. And it is only the wheat who will be gathered into your barn. Lord, we have heard your word. Lord, we have seen what it teaches. But Lord, we know that it will be of no use to us if we do not believe it. Lord, if we are not obedient to it. Lord, if we do not repent of our sin and trust in Christ and live a godly life. So Lord, we pray that you would do this work within us. 
Lord, that you would cause us to walk in your ways. Lord, to be faithful to you. Lord, to be obedient to you in all things. Lord, we pray that this ministry, Lord, this outcome of the preaching of the word of God, Lord, that the blessing of the fathers and children being united together in one faith, Lord, we ask that you would grant that to us and to our homes. Lord, please give that to us. Lord, we pray that our children, that they would believe. Lord, that they would not be superficial, that they would not be hypocrites. Lord, that they would not be, Lord, like the seed that fell among the the path or the rocks or the thorns. But Lord, that the seed that they hear, week in and week out, Lord, in our church, in our meetings, Lord, in our homes and the conversations we have and the lessons that we give there, Lord, we pray that that seed would fall upon good soil and that it would land within our children and that it would bear much fruit in their life and that, Lord, we would be united together with them. Lord, as well, we pray that the fathers and the mothers and the grandparents, Lord, that we would not be superficial. Lord, that we would not preach to our children and yet ourselves fail to enter into that rest. Lord, that we would not be disqualified because of disobedience. But that, Lord, there would be true faith, true repentance, true godliness. Lord, that we would live our lives for your glory and that you would unite our homes together. Lord, in a bond of peace and in love and in true faith. And that, Lord, we would desire to live a godly life and that we would be helping each other. Lord, in all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, this is what we desire more than anything else. Lord, more than our physical safety, more than our physical comfort. Lord, more than the success of our children, more than their accolades. Lord, what we want more than anything, Lord, is their salvation. Lord, to be bound together with them in the one body of Christ. Lord, to enter into the kingdom of God with them. Lord, to be together for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful, Lord, to teach the gospel in our homes. And Lord, we pray that you would bless our efforts, our labor, Lord, our ministry, and that you would cause it to bear much fruit, Lord, in the life of our children and in our grandchildren. Lord, that you might be glorified and that, Lord, we might be spared as a man spares his son. So, Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that these lessons that we've learned Lord, from Malachi, his warnings and, Lord, his oracles, Lord, that they would be in our hearts and in our mind and on our lips, and that, Lord, we would walk according to the truths, Lord, that are found therein. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.